Welcome to the Loss and Lifting Talk podcast. The show is created to help you find your confidence by breaking down the complicated science of training and nutrition and turning it into simple, but more importantly, practical solutions that you can implement right away to start creating real results inside your body composition. We don't stop there either. We dive into the mental aspect of fitness to not only build a better body, but a better life all around. Podcasts were the medium where I learned and grew as an individual more than any other place in my life. The goal of this podcast is to give that back to you to start building the exact body and life that you know you're capable of. So without further ado, let's jump into the episode. Alex, good morning, man. How's it going? Good. You know how we were talking about travel and Airbnbs and all that last week on the start of the podcast? Yeah. I took that as a motivator just to go ahead and book my next vacation. So as of late March, like next year, I'll be going to Turkey. So Turkey in 2024. Yeah. So just a few months. Yes. Mm-hmm. Good for you, man. That's cool. What Turkey looks like a really cool country. I've actually watched a lot of vlogs from people traveling that way. Like that's kind of something I'll do in my downtime is I like to watch travel vlogs, seeing where people mm-hmm. go and just seeing different parts of the world, obviously. But um, what are the plans for going there? Like, do you have specific things already that you figured out to do? Or is it like, I just need to find somewhere to go. So I'm just going to book this and then figure it out later. No. So basically how I like organize travels is I basically have a list and there's like, here's the places that I want to go to eventually. And here's basically the priority of places I want to go to, like my top five, let's say. And then kind of based off this like time of year, like when I'm going, what kind of flight prices are, there's just always options that kind of make a little bit more sense. And so that was one of the top five. And a big thing with my girlfriend who's going to be traveling with me is she has always wanted to see the hot air balloons that fly over Cappadocia. I don't know if it's Cappadocia or Cappadocia, whatever. Um, I think people people pronounce it different ways. There's like the American generalized version of saying it and like the official like Turkish way, but I'll simplify and say Cappadocia. But if you've seen on like Instagram, they have all those reels where it's like you're on the hotel kind of rooftop and it's like the hot air balloons are kind of flying by. Mm-hmm. So that's like the main kind of part of the trip, kind of what we're most excited for. But then there are also basically like different historic sides of Istanbul itself, which is like where you fly into. So there's like historic Istanbul, European Istanbul, the Asian side of Istanbul. And so kind of so a lot of like history, just a cool, unique place to visit. And then you can do basically um, just direct flight, I guess it would kind of be like, kind of like flying from maybe like St. Louis to Chicago O'Hare, which for those of you who don't know, it's like an hour flight. So it's just super easy just to go. I mean, you could go same day if you wanted to just buy a ticket and you fly over to Cappadocia. And so it's going to be kind of like a two city trip within Turkey. But yeah, that's kind of just, yeah, that's it. That's cool, man. Good for you. That reminds me of when you mentioned like you're going to get to Turkey and then you're going to fly to another space in Turkey while you're there. My wife and I went to Thailand. Um, Let's see. It was probably like five years ago at this point, maybe. Yeah, roughly five years ago or so. But so we flew into Phuket and then we went up to Chiang Mai and to get up to Chiang Mai from Phuket, we had to fly. And so like we were in just like on like a a little Thailand airline, essentially, not like a regular Mm -hmm. American airline or like a big airline by any means. And so we get there and obviously we're in Thailand for like 10 days and we spent half the time in Phuket, half the time up in Chiang Mai. And I just remember getting to the airport to fly from Phuket up to Chiang Mai and them telling us that we could only carry on like 25 pounds worth of luggage each. And we each packed 50 pounds of luggage. And so they wouldn't let us take the remainder of what we had. I we So what we ended up having to do, I remember being so stressed off, so stressed and so pissed off in the moment, just like, cause we didn't understand we we're going to end up in that situation. And whenever I fly or like whenever I travel, I try to take the path of least resistance. So for me, it's like, okay, if we're going to go all the way to, to Thailand, like in, from my perspective, it's like, let's just go and hang out and wherever we can drive, we can drive. But my wife is like more of a hardcore traveler, probably more like you, like she wants to go, she wants to experience it all. She, if you have to travel and fly to different places when you're there, like she's all for it. That doesn't really get to her because she's more about just like the entire experiencing and fulfilling it as much as you can, as opposed to me where I'm mm-hmm. like, let's just chill out, get there. Like we're already going, let's just have a good time. Let's not try to stress ourselves out more, even more when we get there. 
And I remember we got to the airport and they weren't going to let us take the rest of our luggage. And obviously we're in Thailand, like we don't have anywhere. So the one thing with that though, is when we flew from Phuket to Chiang Mai, we were going to have to fly when we were done in Chiang Mai back to Phuket afterwards um, to be able to fly Mm -hmm. back up into China to get back over to the States. So we were sitting there and they weren't going to let us take all of our baggage. And so we looked at each other like, what the hell are we going to do? And we're trying to ask people for help, right? Like, what are we supposed to do in this situation? And they don't really care, right? They're like, Mm -hmm. like, good luck. And so we ended up, I don't remember how it happened, but we ended up over at like this boxing section and we took a bunch of our stuff out of our luggage so that we just had what we needed for Chiang Mai put it in these boxes, ended up finding somewhere to be able to store the rest of our belongings while we were gone at the airport. We talked somebody into allowing us to keep our stuff there so that we flew up to Chiang Mai, had a good time, came back and were able to retrieve rest of the stuff that we weren't able to take with us. But I just remember being so stressed and like so pissed off thinking like, what in the hell are we going to do in this situation? Just because like when you're in, at least for me, like going to a new country, it's it's stressful in a sense for whatever reason. Like I just get kind of anxious about it because of the unknown, right? Like if you've mm-hmm. never been there, we hadn't really talked to anybody that had ever been there before. It was just kind of a wing it trip. And I just remember being so, so stressed in that moment and pissed off and looking back at it now and being able to laugh at it. But in that moment, it was like so triggering. I don't know why, but it just that you mentioning that just reminds me of, of that happening, which is pretty funny. I've actually had that happen. Not luckily to myself but one of the big problems is I do like to travel like you and especially with all the disasters of like bags not getting delivered to where they're supposed to be has just really like freaked me out so it's like I could be taking a two three week vacation I'll manage to fit away or I'll manage a way to fit it all into a backpack like whatever I need like you travel it's it's staying on me like I'm not putting it out of my sight I'm bringing it, you know, small enough that I can bring it with me on the plane. I can hold on to it, put it under the seat, whatever I got to do. But it's tough because once I'm in a place, I do like to then go and explore. Like in Bali early, earlier this year, like we went and we went and explored like the Gili Islands. So what you bring on the plane might be totally acceptable, but then trying to travel around the island, it's like, okay, well, now you're going on this tiny little plane that either doesn't allow the size bags that you brought with you which is kind of what you guys ended up with or it's like hey we're gonna have a hundred people all squeezed into this tiny little ferry and then it's like okay well where does my bag go and they're like it doesn't like just no room or it's like you know and people end up getting screwed out of things and just going through different airports too it's weird like um i was flying through london heathrow airport and the general rule that I've always kind of known is like you can bring whatever liquids that you want, but they have to be like three ounces or three and a half ounces or ounces or smaller. But going through there, it's not just three and a half ounces and smaller, but it's also you can only have one clear like plastic bag, like a Ziploc bag full. So it's like if it doesn't fit in the bag, you got to throw it out. And so my girlfriend coming home from... I think it was the Switzerland Iceland trip of last year, but she had to throw away like all this expensive makeup because they were just like, whatever doesn't fit, you can't bring. And she's like, but it's the right size. And they're like, we don't care. Like you get, that's the rule of this airport. And she's like, but why could I like bring it here, but not take it out? And they're like, (laughs) I don't know. And so it's just like, okay, but like I physically brought this with me and they're like, yes. And they're like, so I can't take it out. No. And it's like, oh, okay. But it does kind of remind you to think ahead of like, where else am I going to be traveling that's not on this major airline carrier? Because a lot of times you are going to get kind of just crapped out in those situations. Yeah, you just end up in, especially traveling out of the country and into different areas with different cultures and rules that you don't understand. You can just end up in like these feel, these situations where you feel helpless right? Because you're in a different country. You're not talking to very many people that speak the same language as you. They don't really have any empathy for you in the first place. Like, oh, you're just an American. You know what I mean? Like you can Mm -hmm. kind of get that vibe and select places that you'll go, especially in China. When we traveled to China, that was like, they could give a shit. Like they looked at us like scum. I felt like when we were there, it was especially getting into the country. Like it was such an intense experience, but yeah, you end up in these 
helpless situations that you've got to learn to navigate. But I think that's one of the cool experiences about travel, especially when you're putting yourself in uncomfortable situations. Like I think everybody should go through that just for the, the character building and the problem solving that it can instill you with from those types of experiences, I think are just a massive growth. And that's one thing that I really love about traveling, especially going out of the country and going to places that not a lot of people have experience with, I guess, that are just big culture shocks to to how we live. Like it just adds such a new perspective and growth on realizing how different your reality is from so many people. Like I growing up in America, right? And just living the everyday today life with the privileges and and different things that we have that just feel so normal and going to other areas and realizing how blessed you truly are for like where you were born. And that's not something that we get to control. That's just an odds factor. Um, I think it adds a different perspective to, to your life that can massively enhance it. Have you experienced that same kind of thing? Yeah, I'd say there's just something about traveling where it's like every single trip, I tend to learn something that I didn't know before, but it's also the fact that like, because it's happened to me now, I'm also never going to make that mistake going forward. It just, there's things that you just don't think about, things that you don't plan out. And I think this really applies to like just any kind of area. It's like, it's all going to be new to you and like, you're going to mess up along the way. But it's like, as you travel, it's like, you learn to pack better. You learn to plan better. You learn to navigate the streets better. You learn how to simplify your English so like the foreigners understand. It's like this, all these kinds of things where it's like, I mean, it takes time. It takes practice. It's like anything else. And like, it is going to be a bit uncomfortable, but I mean, that's kind of like the fun part for me. It's like, I want to be put in a country where it's like, you know, no one speaks English and you still got to find a way to like make it to where you want to go. And like, you know, they don't have the, Google Maps or whatever it might be. It's there was one trip, uh, Sri Lanka, and for the three weeks we had the same driver who spoke basically no English. So all the communication was basically like done on Google Translate. And you know Google Translate comes with its inaccuracies. And so there'd be certain points where it's like, I thought I'd be saying something. And I guess whatever the translator like put through wasn't what I was saying. And it'd be like, all right, we're here. And I'm like, we're where? And he's like, here, like where you want. And I'm like, no, 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 not here. Not what I meant. Like I want, you know, and it's just like the little things like that. And it's like looking back, it's just something kind of just fun to look back on. Like it's, you get a good laugh out of it in the moment. Yeah. It's a little scary. It's a little kind of uncertain, but it always does make for a very good time. Just kind of coming home, being able to look back and you're like, yeah, like I made it through and no, not a single person there like knew what I was saying. And it's funny because like I'd be riding on the train and they literally want like pictures with me because I was American. And they're like, we don't see Americans over here in Sri Lanka like this. Yeah. You know, they see a lot of like people from the UK and stuff and from Europe, but to be like an American, they're like, Oh, like Trump. Oh. And like they're making fun <laughs> of the presidents and all this stuff. Cause yeah. that's just all they know. They just see the, whatever they see on TV and they're like, Oh, Trump president. And I'm like, Yep, that's us. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. I actually had a client that I worked with a couple of years ago that was from Sri Lanka. What is Sri Lanka is right? Is is Sri Lanka considered Asia? I think so. Yes, I'm not as much travel as I do. I should be better with geography, but I'll admit I am absolutely horrible with ge geography. But I do believe it is Asia. I could be completely wrong, but I, I feel like it's right in between kind of the Middle East and Asia, but more biased towards the Asia side. Because when I, I remember having having someone book a call with me for coaching, and when I got on the phone with him, and he was from Sri Lanka, I had no idea where it was. So I remember getting on the map to kind of look at it. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, I worked with a guy from Sri Lanka who actually owned a gym over there. He was a personal trainer himself. Um, and I did some online coaching with him for a while, which is kind of cool. But when you went to Sri Lanka, did you go on that trip by yourself? I just remember seeing your social media posts and stuff on it. And I got the impression that you were there alone. Or did you go with friends? No. So that's actually a funny one. So that was basically probably one of the most spontaneous trips that I've taken. So by the time, like when I booked it, I was gone seven days later or eight days later. So just I basically booked the flights for a week out. And so I was thinking, 
at first I was like, oh, that'd be a cool place to go to. And I kept, kept seeing more and more and more and more. And I was like, that looks like a really freaking pla- you know, cool place to go visit. And then I was thinking, okay, it's like middle of the school year. And like most people can't just like pick up their bags and go and travel to Sri Lanka for, you know, three weeks. And when I travel, like Claire, your wife's like, I want to travel. I want to like, yes, we are traveling, but like within the travel, we are traveling and we are experiencing, we are seeing everything that we want to see because I don't want to feel the need to like go home and then be like, oh, I need to go back and see like this different area that I did. I didn't get to see. So I was like, who could actually go and take three weeks off? And I was thinking, and I was thinking, and I was like, you know what? My grandma, like she's retired. She's always wanted to travel. That's cool. And so my grandpa is one who doesn't like to travel much. Like for him going like to Florida, that's like a big thing. Yeah. My grandma is kind of like, like, I want to be able to, you know, do some of these, do some of these things that I never really got a chance to do. And so I called her and I was like, grandma like any chance you want to pack your bags and go to sri lanka like next week and she was like sri lanka who what like where <laughs> like what she, she was like what is sri lanka and yeah. i was like oh it's just a country like you don't gotta know much because when i travel i tend to do the church searching of the airbnbs and i make the itinerary and i kind of do m- majority of the planning so like if you're traveling with me odds are all you gotta do is pack your bag and show up and so she just packed you her sound bag just like my wife and that was it and then we went to sri lanka for three weeks and i brought my computer with me and i kept working i kept doing my check-ins and just was kind of switching spots every three to four days and yeah i mean that's probably been one of my favorite trips that i went on just it was just very spontaneous but also just i feel like i got a lot out of that trip as a whole just i put myself under this a lot of pressure just to basically figure out everything i needed to do in a week and then like I said, no one spoke English. So it's just like, you got a week to figure out where you're staying, what you're going to do, like how you're going to like get a driver. And yeah, that's something that your grandma, like, and yourself cherish as well too. Like I, I mm-hmm. would imagine, I don't know how close you are with your grandma. So you're probably pretty close. close. She just packed up and went to mm-hmm. Sri Lanka with you, but I'm sure that that made your guys's relationship even closer, like a bigger bond just from putting yourselves in that situation together as well. So that's, yeah. that's super cool. Is that the only trip that you ever done with her before? We went to, and I may mispronounce this. There's the English pronunciation and like the official pronunciation pronunciation um quebec city in canada specifically like old town quebec so they you did that at, last last year too no? i think that was i feel like i saw you not, travel a lot not I've... last december but maybe no maybe that was last i kind of like lose track of like when I, it is i mean it was your travel but i feel like it was like within the last year just from remembering it may i could be it wrong de- but... it definitely could have been but it's actually a part of canada where they speak french there so that was kind of another one where it's like they don't. Is that really on the east side? English. Is it? That's on. Yeah, yeah. I think it's like yeah, more east. Okay, cool. So I how was? Again, I've always been very curious about that part of Canada because I feel like I've never been actually been to Canada. I have a few friends that are up that way, but it seems pretty Americanized, right? For the most part, like it's it's like another section of the U.S. in a way, just culture wise and obviously being able to talk to people and, and English is their main language and everything. But I've always been super curious about like the French provinces within Canada, because I feel like you would go to those and you would know, I'd love to hear from you. Like, does it feel when you're in those areas, does it feel like you're in a completely different country? No. Yeah. You can, you can very clearly tell when you're in like old town Quebec one, just because like the language barrier, like it goes from like, Hey, I can speak English to like, no, not, no English like whatsoever. Um, they do know of like a little bit, of course, but you can just tell in the way they one speak in this their overall like culture. You can tell by the way the streets are set up, by the way the stores are set up. Um, we actually went actually went during their like Christmas time, so in December, and they have all the little like markets and stuff set up. And when I tell you like they go all out for Christmas. There is not a single store or a single building in like the entire city that doesn't have Christmas decorations like all out. And so my grandma's favorite part of the trip was just walking down the little alleyways and just seeing all the decorations and this like window shopping in each of the little stores. So, yeah, you I think it's 
at least that side of Canada that you can very, very clearly tell the difference in like more of like an Americanized Canada and like actual like authentic, I guess French. more like a city kind of province French. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's super cool, man. Um, I've, I've wanted to travel up that way and go to the, the French provinces and just see what that's like. I feel like it's so interesting when these different cultures end up in like select countries that that's not really the overall culture and like they build their own little communities of culture sub subsequent cultures in these bigger countries like i just find that kind of fascinating and so different just because it's such a contrast um to compare to like maybe just 50 50 miles away from from where they're at and how that happened and how it was settled so that's super cool but um let's hop into some questions should we yep let's go ahead all right cool I got four questions here. So as always, guys, we'll try to get through all of them. We'll see how time permits for that. I would like to start keeping the episodes under an hour, like 45-ish to 50 minutes if possible. Um, But we'll just see how it goes. And we'll see if we get into a group or not with it. So first and foremost, let's hop in. How to trust your body and stop tracking calories when you get back to maintenance. So essentially, how do I get to a point to where like I've gone through a calorie deficit um, I've transitioned back up to a maintenance. How, how can I trust myself and transfer into intuitive eating to get away from tracking and be able to sustain the progress that I've been able to create? Firstly, one thing that I always set the expectation of when a client is tracking is that when we're tracking the food in front of us, we're not just tracking to track, but we're more so doing what's called attentive tracking. Like when you put four ounces of chicken onto a plate, are you actually kind of looking, engaging and seeing what four ounces of chicken looks like? And assuming that you've done that for let's say six plus months, I'd guarantee that you know a lot more than you did prior to starting tracking. And so I'm not sure where this person's coming in at, whether it's been tracking for six months or a year or multiple years, but I will say you just want to start small as you would with anything else. Build up the small wins. Do something that you know you can do 100% and just see yourself kind of hitting those one to two targets. And that may for a client look like I'm going to track Monday through Friday, but I'm going to not track my dinners on the weekends. And as you kind of start realizing like, oh, not tracking a meal isn't going to make me automatically gain five pounds, then it's kind of like, okay, maybe I start not tracking my breakfast that I have had every single day for the past year. Like a lot of us eat the same breakfast, we eat the same lunch. And so those meals, kind of like I was saying, you should be pretty familiar with what those look like, how those feel. I tend to eat my meals out of the same bowl. So it's like if I pour six ounces of chicken into like my chicken bowl, I know what that looks like and I know what it feels like. And so as you kind of gain that confidence and like, okay, I'm not tracking dinners. Maybe you stop tracking breakfast, however you want to set it up. You start to kind of gain trust in yourself. And once that trust is gained kind of within yourself, I think you kind of realize you're capable of like handling and balancing more than you may think like from the start, if that makes sense. And so that's kind of where I would start and kind of think about it from like a mental perspective. Yeah, I agree. I think so whenever I begin working with somebody and they come in, I I the overall goal is to take them through different phases with their nutrition that are eventually going to get them to a place to where they are eating intuitively. So I'll just kind of break down kind of what that timeline would look like with those different phases that lead to successful intuitive eating from my perspective and where where I've been able to find a lot of success with people. Um at that intuitive eating aspect. So first and foremost, when somebody comes in and let's say that they have a goal of fat loss, let's say they have 15 pounds that they're trying to lose. And we eventually want to get them to a point to where they're just eating intuitively while sustaining that 15 pounds. The first phase is always kind of the, the primer phase, which can last anywhere from one week up to three, four, five, even six weeks, potentially just depending on where they're coming in at. And the primer phase is essentially to get somebody tracking their intake at the top range of their maintenance level. So we're not necessarily focused on fat loss right out of the gate. 
right? We're just getting them comfortable eating at a maintenance level, which is roughly where we're going to have them eating at the end of the process once they've lost the weight as well to sustain that weight loss that they've lost. The, their maintenance could potentially be a little bit lower just because they've lost some weight. So the metabolic rate is a little slower just because a lighter body doesn't burn as many calories as a heavier body. Um, but you get the point. So we get them eating at a maintenance level and tracking just to get comfortable with, okay, this is kind of my home base, right? This is where I can eat without really gaining weight, without losing weight, get comfortable with um, hitting enough protein on a daily basis, staying consistent with tracking and understanding portion sizes. And once we get them there and they're, they're good and they're consistent, they feel comfortable with tracking and their weights maintaining and their biofeedback is all in a good position in regards to their hunger's good, their sleep's good, their energy's good, their strength is improving in the gym. We know that we've got them at a good sustainable maintenance level and their hormonal profile. It's probably in a pretty good position if all that biofeedback is stable and weight is staying stable as well. So from there, we know they're in a great position to go through a fat loss phase. So at that point, we would put them into a deficit and start that process of fat loss. So calories decrease um, and we start aiming to lose weight on a weekly basis. Now, something you have to keep in mind, the longer that you stay in a deficit over the long term, a lot of people don't realize that that is a stressor on your body for your body to use its actual tissue as an en energy source that does become an additional stressor on your body. A lot of people think, oh, well, if I'm losing weight, I'm getting healthier. You are in the long run, but the actual process of weight loss isn't something that you can just sustain forever. And because your health will actually diminish if you're always eating in a weight loss fashion, if that makes sense. And so we keep them in the deficit. We try to keep biofeedback as, as good as we can while ensuring that they're still progressing. But as a result, once you're 10, 12, 15 weeks into a deficit consistently, hunger is going to be higher. Energy may be a little bit lower. It may be impacting your sleep a little bit. Mentally, you could just be more fatigued and a little bit more stressed with more anxiousness, potentially motivation might be a little bit lower at that point. Your strength might, might not be increasing quite as much when all of that starts to happen. You know that it's time. Okay. I need to allow my body a break from the deficit. So if, if we get to that point, let's say it's 15 weeks down the road and somebody's biofeedback is getting a little bit poor and they've been able to lose, let's say 15, 20 pounds throughout that process. Well, at this point, this is when we, we start that reverse diet back up to their maintenance level to start recovering all of the, those biofeedback markers and work on sustaining the level of progress that they made on higher calories. And there's a lot of different ways to go about reverse dieting. Um, a lot of people will be like, oh, you don't need to reverse diet. And then there's people that say, oh, you have to reverse diet. Essentially all that a reverse diet really means is just getting calories back up to a maintenance level for different people. I'll take different approaches depending upon their mindsets and like how open they are or how much mental resistance they have to increasing calories, right? Like I'll have some people that are like very afraid to increase calories. So I'm not just going to force them to be like, no, just start eating this amount. Like forget about how you feel. No, for those types of individuals, maybe we'll go a little bit slower just so I can prove to them, see as we're slowly increasing calories, like this isn't negatively impacting your body composition, right? So for them, it makes it more adherent if we go at a little bit of a slower pace. But at the end of the day, the goal is just to get back up to a maintenance as quickly as you can to start recovering that biofeedback. So if somebody doesn't have any resistance to it, then it's like, okay, let's increase these calories a little bit faster and maybe bump your first week up by 300, 400 calories. And we'll inch them up a little bit more each week um, by like 50 to hundred until we're at maintenance. And then for other people, it's maybe like, okay, like I can talk you into increasing by hundred to 150 for this first week. And then we'll slowly bump up from there, just depending on the individual, but that's besides the point. So once you get back up to your maintenance level of calories, after the diet and that biofeedback starts to improve because as you're back up to a higher level in your caloric intake and you're at maintenance, your hormones will tend to stabilize your leptin and ghrelin hormones, which control hunger and satiation will tend to start to stabilize. And you'll just start to energy will start to come back. Strength in the gym will start to come back. You'll just start to feel a whole lot better at the end. And now your hunger is back in a very good position as well as all of your, your biofeedback markers. And you've just spent, let's say the last who 24 to or 20 to 30 weeks roughly tracking your calories now you're at a good maintenance level of calories well we would continue to track at maintenance for anywhere from 
two up to eight weeks, I would say, just depending upon the individual to ensure biofeedback is good and ensure that um, they get very comfortable with understanding portion sizes at their maintenance level of calories and what that kind of looks like on a day-to-day basis with tracking. And as biofeedback is in a good position, they've been able to sustain the weight that they lost. And it's been a, a decent amount of time. They're feeling very comfortable with portion sizes at their new maintenance level of calories. Well, at this point, what I would do with them is I'd be like, okay, so for this week, we're going to track five days out of the week and you're going to take two days where you don't track anything. And you just rely kind of on the tools and the intuition that you've built from tracking all this time through those two days. You don't necessarily need to change things up a whole lot. We're just going to pull away the tracking. And if you maintain your weight without those two days of tracking, okay, in the next week, we're going to have you track for three days, let's say, or four days, and you're not going to track for three days and follow that same intuition and that same, those same skills that you built while obviously continuing to weigh yourself and use that as a metric to understand that you're maintaining your weight throughout that process. And if they're able to sustain their weight while only tracking for four days and not tracking for three days, well, then maybe I'd move it to, okay, this week you're only going to track for two days and you're not going to track for five days while still relying on the intuition. And if they're able to get through that process until we're to a point to where we're not tracking any days out of the week and they're still sustaining their weight, well, now we've successfully transferred them into intuitive eating. And the one thing that I would say that if you're going to eat intuitively with success and sustain weight loss that you've created, you need to continue weighing yourself as an about as an accountability tool over the long term, right? So if you get to the point where like you've, you've gotten to an intuitive eating and you no longer weigh yourself, it's very easy to steer off and not be able to counter correct if there's times where you may be over eight or under eight in particular situations. So continue to weigh yourself on a daily basis to be able to get those weekly averages and ensure you're roughly maintaining your weight throughout allows you to course correct along the way. Let's say if you had a couple of days where potentially you overate a little bit, well, in the next couple of days, like if weights up a little bit, you know that you can kind of counteract that by, by maybe being a little bit more tedious and like decreasing portion sizes just a little bit so that you're always kind of adjusting depending upon what's happening on a day-to-day basis to keep yourself roughly in that maintenance level to be able to sustain that over the long term. So weighing yourself when eating intuitively and getting through that whole process, like I mentioned, is the most important factor in my opinion, to be able to continue to rely on your intuition and make sure that you're keeping that middle ground throughout the entire process. So I'm curious, kind of just going off that question here before we move on to the next question when we're looking at the different phases of nutrition, like a deficit, a maintenance phase, and a surplus phase, let's stick it to those three. When would you say would be the best time to kind of start introducing intuitive eating? And when would be like the worst? Like, when would you not want to be trying to be figuring out like intuitive eating? If you're kind of taking a client, kind of coaching a client through that, what would be like the least beneficial time to do that? During fat loss. For sure. Just because when I put somebody into a fat loss phase, for the most part, I want to ensure that we are being as efficient as possible with fat loss and getting through the fat loss phase as quickly as we can. And the best way to be able to get through that as quickly as you can is to control all of the variables and be tedious with what you're eating and ensuring that you're hitting your numbers to a T so that you can see how your body's responding and then adjust accordingly to ensure that the effort that you're putting into fat loss is being used as efficiently as possible. So I, I very rarely will try to have somebody eating intuitively when the main goal is fat loss, just because I want them to be as dialed in and controlling the variables as much as they can so that we can get through that fat loss phase as quickly as possible. Um, So for me, like when it comes to, to moving somebody through intuitive eating, the only times I'll really get them to that point is one, like if they have been consistent with tracking and really built up that skill and have a really good knowledge base and, and just have a lot of experience in regards to tracking, weighing foods, being able to see portion sizes that they have, that they've had in the past and, and all of that kind of stuff. And just been able to, to be in that experience and put in that dedicated work 
for a long enough period of time that they've built that quality skill to be able to eyeball things and be able to listen to their hunger levels and be able to rely on that from um, having their biofeedback all in a good position, if that makes sense. So if they're in a fat loss phase, I'm never going to really run somebody through um, any sort of intuitive eating. Um, up at maintenance and into a surplus, uh, that's when I would I get much more flexible with it. Obviously, like at maintenance, if somebody creates progress um, in a deficit and now they're back up at a maintenance level, and we've gone through that whole process, like I mentioned before, slowly transitioning into intuitive eating, I feel like makes a lot of sense. And then from there, if they're eating intuitively, it's like, okay, I want to go into a bit of a surplus in my opinion and what I do for myself as well. And it depends on the client and their personality type obviously as well. But, um, I don't see a huge issue with eating more intuitively when the goal is building muscle and you're going into a surplus, as long as you're still consistently tracking your protein intake, um, and, and just being mindful of that on a daily basis with your intuition, right? So like for myself, I eat intuitively, I've been eating intuitively for the last while through my surplus. And what I'm focused on is trying to get anywhere from 30 to 50 grams of protein in each of my meals and snacks. I know that I eat roughly anywhere from four, maybe up to five times per day, which is going to have me hitting anywhere from 150 to 200 grams of protein per day, which is plenty for my specific situation. And then I'm just tracking the scale and trying to make sure that I'm never really having times where like, I feel too hungry, if that makes sense. Because at this point, like biofeedback is really good. I don't really deal with any hunger issues because I've been in surplus for such a long time that like my body is fully satiated. Don't deal with a lot of craving. So I'm just trying to ensure that I'm never like getting to a point where I'm starving and eating anywhere from four to five times per day with those higher protein intakes um, and tracking my weight. And if it's just slowly ticking up over time, I know that I have myself in a, in a small surplus and I'm moving in that right direction. One thing with that though, as well, just talking about surpluses, this might be going a little bit of a different rant. When it comes to going into a surplus, I feel like one mistake that I know that I made in the past and something that I've seen a big difference in it might be a pretty decent idea for most people to have a good fat to carb ratio when you're in a building phase. And I'd love to hear your opinion on this too, Alex. But I just think that trying to keep fats moderate and push carbs as high as you can within your caloric intake in the surplus is a pretty smart idea when it comes to building muscle, just so that you ensure that you have all of um, that added glycogen that you can use for your training sessions and like be fully filled with glycogen to be able to, to get the max efforts out of your training and be your strongest self when you're in the gym um, and keeping fats just a little bit more moderate, maybe down by like that 20 to 25% of, of your total caloric intake, and then trying to push carbs as high as possible just to get the benefit from carbohydrates um, regarding your training. And I do think that dietary fat can potentially be a little bit easier to store as body fat as opposed to carbohydrates, especially when in a surplus. So just trying to keep fat moderate and not get to a point to where like a lot of my calories that I'm getting when I'm in a surplus are coming from dietary fat. And most of them are coming from carbohydrates with a moderate fat intake and a moderate protein intake. It puts your body in a more anabolic state or promotes muscle growth more so than uh, when your dietary fats are super high. If I am correct, yes, that all like it all makes sense in regards to you want to, of course, have the protein there just to help in the muscle development. Just make sure you are building muscle or if you're in a deficit, let's say retaining muscle. But for the sake of a surplus here, like we want to be putting on as much muscle as possible and reducing fat gain to as little as possible. And so there does come a time when like, increasing protein like higher like isn't going to serve you much further Makes no sense mm -hmm. and it's just kind of just i would say for many people just making the digestive system work harder than it really needs to work and once you've kind of capped out that protein marker then i say okay, okay like let's move to carbs and see how high we can push these without you having like negative side effects from pushing the carbs so high but it's kind of like sometimes like like clients feel like, you know, my protein's here, I could eat more protein. Like, why don't we push that higher? And it's just like the return on that investment's not going to be as good as simply just bumping your carbs higher, especially kind of given the phase that you're in. 
as carbs do also play a large role in helping with recovery, helping with energy, helping with performance and just that muscle building process. And so the only time for myself that I would be like adding in fats, like past what I may like have them at is just to help me ensure that I am like getting more calories in per day, just because they are more calories per gram. So I can more easily dense, like more calorically if, dense. Mm-hmm. So if I'm eating chicken, for example, it's not going to fill me up anymore. Like if I eat the chicken just plain, or if I, let's say, throw in some olive oil or like macadamia oil or something like that, it's just a very quick way to get an extra 100, 200 calories. So that's the only like reason that I would be adding more fats, like as opposed to carbs. And this may look different for different people, but that's kind of my viewpoint and like when I would utilize more carbs versus more fats. I agree. There was a study that came out a while back that I was looking over um, talking about protein intake that was interesting. So I think that when it comes to protein, it's not that it's gotten overhyped, but the recommendations on how much protein you need from like general social media are higher than what you actually need in regards to the muscle building side of things. So it's interesting because I think that when you go into a surplus and you're trying, your main focus is building muscle. I think having your protein intake potentially a little bit lower can make sense in some scenarios and having it a little bit higher during fat loss phases can make sense in certain scenarios. And let me explain this just a little bit. So um, the, the study shows that anything over 0.7 grams per pound of body weight does not lead to any more beneficial impact. So let's say that you go from 0.7 grams of protein per pound of body weight up to one gram per pound of body weight. You're not going to see any added benefit in regards to lean muscle retention or lean muscle growth from going from 0.7 up to one gram per pound of body weight. The, the difference isn't going to make a positive impact on body composition when it comes to lean muscle tissue. Now, let's say you go from 0.5 up to 0.5 grams per pound of body weight up to 0.7, there is um, a significant impact in regards to positivity with your results from going from 0.5 up to 0.7. Put 0.7 grams per pound of lean bo- of, of body mass in regards to um, muscle retention and building muscle, like that's kind of the cap where you're going to see any more positive benefits on a lean muscle building side. Now, with that said though, when it comes to the, so when it comes to building muscle or in a surplus, I think being right around that marker, like aiming for 0.7 to 0.78 grams per pound of, of body weight is probably a a pretty good general guideline. When it comes to fat loss is when I feel like it can get more important to increase that protein intake. And it has nothing to do with like retaining lean muscle or building lean muscle um, when it comes to the fat loss side of it. In my opinion, it comes much more down to the satiation side of it when it comes to protein, as well as the TEF or thermic effect of food. What we know about protein is that digesting protein, you burn more calories than you do carbs or fats, digesting protein than you do those. So you're actually going to be able to speed up your metabolic rate just through digestion if your protein intake is higher, which is going to end up netting in a higher overall caloric deficit, which can potentially lead to a little bit faster fat loss when in a a deficit phase. And number two, protein is the most satiating macronutrient out of all of them as well, meaning it's going to be the most filling because it's the slowest digesting, which is going to allow you to feel a little bit fuller when your protein intake is a little bit higher. So during fat loss phases, I feel like because of those two reasons, it can make a positive impact, pushing that protein intake potentially up a little bit higher to let's say like 0.8 to one gram, or maybe even a little bit higher than that if you want to expedite progress a little bit quicker potentially. Um, But when it's just focused on a surplus, I think keeping protein just around that 0.7 grams per pound of body weight makes a lot more sense. Would you agree with that, Alex? What would your opinion be on that? So the only thing that I would add on to what you're saying is when you're looking at the research itself, a large reason why you don't need all that added protein as much when you are in a surplus phase or even like maintenance is because your carbs are also typically higher. And so Chaz, I'm sure you know this too, carbs are protein sparing. And basically in simple terms, 
the higher your carbs are up to a certain point, it can almost like act like protein in a way, like your body's yeah. going to, it's going to get similar benefits from it. And so when you're moving into a deficit, typically your carbo carbohydrates are also being lowered. So if you don't have that like surplus of carbs, well, now it becomes much more important that you are actually eating the protein because you don't have those or that protein sparing effect from the carbs. And then you throw in the added satiety levels, the uh, performance improvements and the higher TEF. The, yeah, TEF, the thermic effect of food. Those would be like the three reasons, TEF, satiety, and is making sure that you are getting the most kind of bang for your buck through whether it be a surplus phase, a maintenance phase, or a deficit phase, just holding onto that muscle that you have or maximizing the growth that you have within the respective phase. Absolutely. I think we crushed that one. Let's move on, man. Question number two, do you feel like three body days is more effective or four days with an upper lower split? So do you, would you rather see somebody if they could choose do a, a three full body day split or a four day upper lower split? whatever they can stay more consistent with um as long as like the volumes equated out it's really not going to make all that much of a difference and you can say the same if you're thinking three versus four you can also apply the same to four versus five days just to kind of broaden the question out a little bit because i know there's a lot of you out there who are probably wondering like is five days you know better than four is six days better than five the first and most important thing is do what you're able to recover from and do what you can do consistently. So if it's like, I'm trying to do four days, but 80% of the time I can only make it in for like the three workouts, then set it. So like your workout split is like three days per week. And if you get the chance to go a fourth day, like have that be a bonus workout, for example. But the research has shown like as long as you are taking the volume that you need, in performing enough intense sets on those specific specific exercises, how you lay those out across the week is just whatever allows you to be most consistent and you're going to see the same results regardless. Kind of the same as like nutrition. Like if you do, let's say five days low, two days high, and someone does like a flat deficit, as long as the calories are the same through the week, two different methods that are going to end up yielding the same results. I agree. The one thing that I'll say with this is between an upper lower split and a full body split, if you're working out three days per week and that's what you can stay consistent with, I would consider potentially moving to an upper lower full body. So you have three days per week still, but instead of trying to hit your full body on all three of the, those days, moving to an upper lower full body. The hard thing about full body is that those sessions can tend to take a lot longer and it's harder to, you have to have more warm up sets for each exercise because each exercise that you go into, you're essentially cold because you haven't been moving those joints through much of a range of motion. Like let's say if you were doing squats and then you got to move into a bench press, or if you're doing a shoulder press and you got to move into leg extensions, there's going to be a lot more need to warm up for each of your working sets, as opposed to, let's say um, you did if you're just doing an upper body day, well, if you did chest and then from there, you're moving into a little bit of shoulder work, well, your shoulders are already going to be warmed up from doing some of that chest work. So you're not going to be as cold moving into each exercise. So you're not going to need as many warm up sets, which could potentially help in regards to mitigating the risk of injury. But um, more important than that, from my perspective, it's just going to be a time saver and allow you to get through those training sessions a little bit faster. So full body workouts, in my opinion, tend to just be a little bit more draining and taxing in regards to the time needed to get through them. Um, and two, that if you're doing full body, it can potentially be a little bit harder to recover from if you're throwing a bunch of big compound movements into each of those full body days that are going to require you to use more weight and take more joints to an active range of motion could potentially lead to more fatigue and be harder to recover from. Plus that the length of time that can potentially make it take longer for you to get through. I just don't love full body days for most people. If you're somebody who loves to train full body and you don't really deal with those issues and you enjoy it, there's no, I'm not telling you that you shouldn't be doing it, but I just think that it can potentially be smart to switch up to an upper lower than with one full body day so that you're still training 
each muscle group twice per week, but in those upper and lower sessions, you can potentially get through them a little bit faster. They're not going to be quite as fatiguing. And then you've got that one full body day per week that may take a little bit more to recover from. It may take a little bit longer in the gym as well, but you're only having to deal with that once per week as opposed to three times per week. You could even say for the woman out there, and of course, this isn't going to apply to every single woman, but a lot of my clients who do um, like the they can commit three days to working out per week. A lot of them don't necessarily care to be progressing like upper body too much. Like they still yeah. want to progress it, but not to the same extent as their lower body. So even, you know, if you, if you want to go from four to three, instead of doing upper, lower, upper, lower, you could just simply do a lower, upper, lower. Yeah. I do that a lot as well. I think that that's so, super smart. So, so yeah, that's a good point. That's a really good point to bring up. So if you're going to train three days per week and you don't necessarily want to split out your body parts evenly, and you wanted to run something to where maybe it is more lower body biased, then it, it would make sense to go um, lower, upper, lower. So you're getting that one upper body training session per week, but you're getting two hard lower body sessions per week. I do that with a lot of clients. We have people in the group training who do that exact same thing as well. So mm -hmm. that's a, a very good point to bring up. And even in my own training right now, so my lower body is more developed than my upper body and I train five days per week. So for me right now, like I'm not really focused. I, I don't need my lower body to get a whole lot bigger. I'm trying to get my upper body to catch up. So my training split at the moment, I'm training five days per week is um well it just barely changed actually for this block that i just started in the last week so i'll tell you what that is so it's chest and back on day one it's shoulders and arms on day two it's legs on day three and then it's chest and back on day four and shoulders and arms on day five and that's it so i'm only training lower body once but i'm hitting all of those other my upper body twice per week with a lot more volume. So I'm basically just maintaining my lower body while building my upper body, getting two sessions in for each. And then it, it, that's what it is now before, before that, the, it was, um, a push pull lower push pull. And then I would just repeat that on a weekly basis. And so that's a very good point to bring up the areas of your body that you're wanting to build, like giving them more days per week, potentially to be able to push volumes a little bit higher. And then the muscle groups that you're just trying to maintain, maybe backing off just a little bit so that you can conserve that energy to put more effort into those areas that you're trying to build is a very smart approach when it comes to building out your, your workout split. One more thing I'll add on is very quickly. You also don't have to think about your workout split from like a simple seven day period. Yeah. Like you can also extend that out. Like maybe your workouts don't fit perfectly into seven days. Maybe you make it like your week is like a 10 day span. And like, there's just so many different ways to plan this. So like take what's important to you, figure out where the volume fits, put the days in a way where like from one workout to the next, you can recover as you need. And there's just there is no one correct way. It's do what makes sense for you and your goals. And this is kind of where it helps to know program design is because you can customize this to each individual just kind of based off what your own specific goals are. So that's kind of where I'd leave that. Yeah. And, th and as well, like just to caveat off of that, the last thing, like make sure it's what you're enjoying as well mm -hmm. too, right? Like build out your, Absolutely. your programming and your split in a way that is fun for you and that you don't dread because if you're not enjoying it, there's going to be times where your motivation is low, right? You're not always going to be super motivated to be in the gym and put in the effort that needs to be put in. And if what you're doing, is not something that you enjoy doing when motivation is low, it's going to be even harder to get into the gym and to continue to train. Like for myself today, I did, I trained lower body this, uh, this morning before we hopped on this podcast. And when I woke up, some of my first thoughts were like, man, I do not want to squat today. Like there's nothing in me that wants to go in and, and do hill of hill elevated barbell squats, which is what I've been trying to progress for this last, for this last, um, block that I've been running. Um, so then I thought like, can I hack squat, um, and started thinking about that and really didn't want to hack squat. I've had issues with my back a little bit for the last little while, my lower back, I've been playing golf too much and it messes up my lower back. And so like a little bit of back issues, knees always feel a little bit achy in the mornings. The only time I could train today was first thing. And so getting there, like I still talk myself into getting to the gym. 
But when I got there, like I knew if I went into those movements, I was going to half-ass them just because my brain wasn't necessarily there. So I just compromised with myself and, and for quads, I did leg extensions and I did sissy squats instead, because I knew that was something that I wasn't going to dread as much. I think there's a fine line there to where sometimes you need to be hard on yourself and just do what you absolutely need to do to get it done. And I think that there are times where like just giving the best effort that you can for the given circumstance makes more sense and finding that right balance and relationship with yourself to where you're keeping the habits intact and doing what needs to be done to see progress um, without getting too soft or necessarily always being too hard on yourself, which can lead to burnout is a big key to this and being able to stay consistent over the long haul. We actually discussed that exact topic in Casey Joe's health mindset coaching certification last week. And it was the idea of like self-compassion and like there's a very fine balance of kind of like that yin and yang sign where it's like the white and like there's the black part of it is like understanding that sometimes like it's okay to kind of look back at a day and be like, I needed that day of rest. Like one day is not going to ruin the entire week type thing. But there's a difference between like saying that all the time Mm -hmm. or kind of saying that sometimes when you really need it and like you get good at understanding what your body needs and then also like when you need to kind of wake up and just be like no you're being a freaking pansy like get your shoes on go and put some weight on that bar and freaking squat and like there's just an even balance and it takes some kind of getting used to and like knowing like am I just being lazy or am I actually needing the rest but just like with anything else it's a skill that gets developed and just because your body just needs that break sometimes like I'd say like most people would look at it, look at that as like, um, just kind of like, oh, I feel bad for doing it. But I explained to my clients, like knowing when to pull back and knowing when to push, it's actually like an advanced technique. It is. Auto-regulation and kind of that whole theory. It's like, or I guess not theory, but that whole idea, it's like, you think it's like you kind of wimping out, but like, that's what actually like the world's best lifters do. They push. And they pull back and they push and they'll, they pull back. And that's why they are as successful as they are. Yeah. And I think that it comes from living on both ends of the extremes for some time. So I think it takes a lot of experience to get to that place and be able to be self-aware enough with yourself. If you've never lived on the side to where, let's say like you always make excuses, right? If you're somebody who has always made the excuses, like you've always found a reason to to not follow through with your goals or not get into the gym or not pay attention to your nutrition, then for you, like it, for the next while, it's not about auto-regulation. Like I, I feel like for that type of individual, you have to make that switch to the other side of the extreme potentially, or it will feel like that extreme to where you stop listening to that inner voice that allows you to, to never give that full effort to be able to achieve your full potential because that's what's holding you back. And so getting to the point to where like, if you're always being too soft on yourself, I think that type of individual needs to sway themselves to the other side of the spectrum and try to never be too soft on themselves and like push themselves and always remind themselves of like, no, you're going to do this regardless of how you feel, of how you feel, like get you doing it consistently, regardless of, of how you're feeling in those specific moments to build that skill on the extreme side. So as you've been there for long enough, you can slowly start to sway back and find a middle ground that has you living within balance. But so many people think that like, oh, I just need to take a balanced approach to this. Well, for a lot of people, their their idea or understanding of balance is skewed. Like them thinking that their balance is them not being consistent enough to actually see the results that they want. So they're always frustrated and mad. Like my body just doesn't work. It must be my hormones. It must be my age. It must be my gender. When in reality, it's just their skew of balance and not understanding the true effort that it takes to actually manipulate and create those adaptations and results that they're truly looking to create. So if you're on that soft side, like for you to get to where you want to be, you're going to have to toughen up 
and harden up and get to a point to where you're living on the other side of the extreme for a good enough amount of time so that you can find that balance. Or if you're on the super extreme side, which I've been on both of these before in the past. And when you're on that super extreme side and never giving yourself a break or never listening to your body or never listening to your mental state and always pushing as hard as you possibly can. Well, at some point, like that's going to backfire. It's going to lead to more injuries. It's going to lead to more anxiety in your day to day. Like, so you learning to maybe pull back a little bit and soften up a little bit and allow yourself to find that middle spectrum is the key for you. So different strokes for different folks, basically understanding where you're at in your particular situation and what's, what's holding you back right now in your mindset is what's holding you back is you're being too soft and you need to harden the hell up a little bit, or is what's holding you back, you're being too hard on yourself and pushing too hard, which is leading to negative results in that aspect. And it'd be good for you to soften up a little bit. So self-awareness is a huge key with this conversation that we're having here, I think, and just being truly honest, like what what's happening for me right now? Like what's what's truly holding me back and what aspect and where where can I shift to find a better balance in my day to day to lead to better results. But more important than that lead to a better, just overall lifestyle and better health as well. Yeah. That's just, it's one of those things I could chat on and on and on about. And I think it just dives into like so many different areas where like a client could like focus their attention to, but in the end, it's all this one big learning experience go through and you'll kind of learn where you fall and where you stand and you're not going to get it right the first time, probably not the second time or the third time or the 20th time. And you're going to continue to mess up. But as long as you kind of just work to find that neutrality and like that healthy relationship with fitness and nutrition and just overall, like your exercise and lifestyle as a whole, that's kind of the place that you want to end up being. Cause then what happens is you just live your lifestyle. And before you know it, it's like, Oh, like I'm reaching my goals and I'm feeling freaking fantastic every day. It's not Kind of like, oh, I hit them and I lost them. Oh, I hit it and then I lost it. I agree, man. I think that hits our time marker. Do you have any closing remarks? I do not. I think we kind of probably went into a little bit too much detail on the questions. It's okay. Um, But yeah, no, I I think I said everything I wanted to say as far as like the questions that were asked. Um, No, I think that's it for me. Cool. What do the listeners need to do when they finish listening to this episode? Listeners, we do not do any sponsorships on, on this show. So if you want to help our podcast grow, get our message out to more people, we do appreciate any written reviews. Um, Chaz actually does all this stuff on the Spotify. So I think it's maybe down below where they're listening or somewhere on the yep, Lost and Lifting just scroll profile. Down. Scroll down. Um, and then if you want to find me on Instagram, Chaz will have my Instagram linked in the Spotify kind of show description and then you guys obviously know where to find Chaz but yeah I think that's it hopefully I didn't ruin that outro there you crushed it all of you have a good day we appreciate you listening and we'll chat with you soon